Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome back. Let's continue our investigation into chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 in the book of James. This is where we were at at our last session. Remember, the heart application of true worship is really situated in the theme of love, which is interwoven throughout the biblical narrative. For James, love is the royal law. James has clearly addressed pure religion simply as true worship. That true worship to God aligns our thinking, emotions, devotion, and actions with that of his character and nature. Remember, it is this reality that drives the entire book of James. That the overarching point and concern of James in his letter is that being like Christ demonstrates that we have been truly changed by Christ and responding to God in our true faith through right belief that produces right action. In chapter 2, James primarily tackles the application of living out pure religion before God by loving others. He commands them to address their lack of love by addressing their greed and their anger and their ungodly speech and discrimination against others, their prejudiced attitudes and actions. So for today's session, let's dig deeper into the serious indictments of prejudices, ungodly distinctions, and evil judgments that he's laid against his readers. In the book Compassion and Conviction, its authors Gibney, Ware, and Butler write the following. As Christians, our primary objective is to profess the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations, Matthew 28. No other task should be allowed to interfere with or obscure that purpose. If the Great Commission becomes secondary, or if Christianity is understood primarily as a means of accomplishing social or political goals, then we've handed to Caesar what belongs to God. Their point is simple but important that the Great Commission and God's priority of using us to tell the nations of the gospel is first and foremost on his agenda. The main premise of their book is to help American Christians navigate the current volatile political climate we currently find ourselves in. Unfortunately, our public discourse as an American society is one that divides, draws lines, and very much lacks charity. Furthermore, in the book, they propose that we as American Christians must prioritize the gospel above any political ideology, figure, or policy, that we must think politically through the lens of the gospel and embrace both our convictions and our exercise of those convictions through compassion and real action. So please note, though, that my intention in bringing this up is not to make any political statements whatsoever here. However, my point is that we can easily use ideology and ideals in our culture that can actually lead us to compromise truth or become unable to show love to others in ways that truly honor God. That our current culture in many ways, including our politics but not exclusive to them, can be centered on our own comfort and security through wealth, as well as our anger towards other people groups because of our disagreement and fear of them. So could it be that our political attitudes and ideologies actually cause us to be prejudiced or discriminate against others along economic and racial lines? Specifically, that there are fellow Christians that might have differing 
ideological views when it comes to issues surrounding these areas of life. And this can cause disunity and even tempt us to mistreat one another. But what do we have in common? We have the gospel in common, and we're headed there. James's audience seems to be practicing discrimination along the lines of economics and social status. This has caused great disunity and, of course, the mistreatment of others. The context of their prejudiced attitudes is in their church meeting. It's, it's in the church. Particularly when they came together to pray, worship, break bread, to give thanks, and to be instructed in the teaching of Jesus' followers, you can reference Acts 2. The word prejudice in the text simply means they were valuing fellow Christians based off of outward circumstances, especially outward circumstances of man, and not their intrinsic merits. And so they prefer them as more worthy. The one who is rich, high-born, or powerful to another who does not have these qualities. Again, this isn't true religion. Rather, it's worldly religion or worldly thinking. Again, this is how the world thinks. As they did, we also struggle with assessing people based off of their outward appearance, of expensive clothing or fine jewelry, or even accomplishments. For them, they took these things and elevated the people who had them. Their perceived importance and value was based on their wealth or worldly accomplishments. They even went as far as sorting the rich from the poor in their church meeting. Can you imagine? They even of giving seats of honor to the wealthy and making the poor sit on the floor. Perhaps one of the most striking biblical examples of superficial and materialistic based way of valuing someone is Israel's first king, Saul. Remember, Israel demanded to have a king because they wanted to secure their national identity through the protection, respect, and notoriety of others, nations surrounding them by simply having a king that was admired through a human perspective. God made it clear that he himself was their God and was their king and that he would supply their protection, provision, and most importantly, give them their identity. That as they follow God, other nations would respect them because God was near to them. In fact, this was the whole point of what God was trying to establish with Israel when they wandered in the desert in their exodus out of Egypt. God gave them over to their desire to have a king, and they chose Saul because of his outward appearance. 2 Samuel 9 verse 2 says, Saul was a handsome young man. There was no one among the Israelites more handsome than he was. He stood head and shoulders above all the people. You see, Saul was a man who gave off an outward sense of strength, power, and wisdom because of how he looked. However, in 2 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7, the Lord says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't be impressed by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. God does not view these things the way that people do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is key as it relates to God's nature. It's the principle of character and uprightness that guides him. It's this principle of character and uprightness that guides him. Again, how God measures one's worthiness to lead and be honored is against the natural inclination of man. It's not that Israel didn't want King Saul to be a man of character and uprightness. Rather, how they measured this was faulty. 
They simply looked at the outward appearance of Saul and used human reasoning and standards to determine his inward qualities. They were very wrong. They wanted the right thing, but valued that thing based on a fallen, sinful man who simply looked good to the world. Similarly, James's audience were determining the qualities of fellow Christians based on outward appearance alone. The problem is beyond just fancy clothes and nice jewelry. Rather, it was a character assessment based on superficial measurements wrought with inherent corruption. This is not only unwise and ungodly, but it sets a pattern of defining character and value in someone based on their temporal, inanimate, lifeless, powerless things, like wealth. The reality is, the gospel shows all of us just how powerless and lifeless we are without Christ. This is the pattern and power of the gospel. Practically, in their church function and affairs, how could they choose pastors or elders and deacons? How could they determine who is fit to teach their children and youth? If they were treating fellow Christians who are poor like this, how will they treat widows and orphans, as we've already read from James? These widows and orphans that will inevitably come into their church, how will they respond to the inevitable sin and character issues present in a wealthy person's life? How will the unsaved world truly see and know Christ in them if they don't know their own value in Christ themselves? In the ancient world, it was not uncommon to sort wealthy and poor people in this manner, particularly in various social cultural contexts. The wealthy were given places of honor, deference, favor, and even regard. Again, the wealthy were seen as powerful and successful, virtuous people. And the thinking said they were virtuous by virtue of their wealth. Look, they're wealthy, therefore they must be hardworking, good stewards of their resources, driven, educated, and have achieved a lot. They must be spiritual, otherwise they wouldn't be wealthy, right? Additionally, the temptation of wealth is so great that it's tempting to treat the wealthy with favor in hopes of benefiting from their wealth, or that if we don't favor them, they will use their power and wealth against us. The love of wealth is a very powerful and dangerous force. To better understand the text here in James chapter 2, we should address the relationship between poverty and the prejudiced treatment of others. As we have said in previous sessions, we simply don't value poor people because, well, they're poor. Poverty comes with stereotypes of laziness, a lack of discipline, poor stewardship, and even ungodly character. This is what we assume from the outside. Poverty can even lead us to think that those who are poor must have done something that dishonored God, therefore he is withholding blessing from them. Or that the cause of their poverty is always related to character flaws in them. Is it possible that wealthy people can actually struggle with laziness, a lack of discipline, poor stewardship, and ungodly character? James's audience was not immune from these realities. In fact, James says that they did these things because of evil motives, chapter 2, verse 4, and that the result of this was blaspheming the name of God, chapter 2, verse 7. This is a very serious charge. To blaspheme the name of God is to essentially present him in a false manner, to literally speak evil of God. James argues that since their motives were evil, that they actually and willfully were speaking evil of God because they were claiming they were his followers and then treating others in a manner that wasn't accurate of who he actually was and is. 
they were making God out to be a liar to those who they were mistreating. They made distinctions amongst one another that moved them away from being able to love one another. Now, the pinnacle of the entire book is this section in verses 8 through 13, which states, But if you fulfill the royal laws expressed in the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James says in verse 9, But if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's violators. For the one who obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a violator of the law. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law that gives freedom. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And what is the significance of love being law and it being royal? Again, it's a bit of a word picture by James. Royalty communicates being supreme above all, worthy, dignified, authoritative, and supremely important. And this is exactly what James means, that the most important law that God has given is that of love. Remember, as we consider the Shema in our session on chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, and its connection to love, James 1.22 says, Be sure to live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. Remember, to Israel, the Shema is understood as the primary focal point and central command of Israel's identity in the Old Testament. It refers to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your being, and with all your strength. The word hear, remember, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 means listen with intention or interest to obey. If hearing means to listen with intention, interest, and obedience, then the implication of James's point is heavy because the implication of the Hebrew understanding of learning is profound. That for God to truly learn and understand something is to not only acknowledge it as viable and true, but simply engaging it cognitively is not going to do but to internalize it in their hearts and have it change their character and then be expressed in their lives and behavior is going to be the goal. For God, it wasn't enough to simply know. Rather, we have to do. Israel's identity as God's people was seated in the character and nature of God. They were to embrace God and obey His commands. They acted like they weren't God's holy and blessed nation in the Old Testament. God's desire was to be near to His people through love and devotion that others would be attracted to and want to follow Him. We love others because we love Him. We love Him because of His character and nature. Jesus' interpretation of loving God is in us loving others in Mark chapter 12. The purpose of our obedience is to show the character and nature of God to one another because we're free from the curse of the law through Christ. This is the witness of the gospel. To love God is to obey His laws. To obey God's laws really leads to love for others. To treat another with prejudice is to discriminate against them and is a violation of the law and is sin. Oppressing the poor is a violation of God's law and is sin. We can't love others if we're oppressing them or devaluing them because of their lack of resources or even their social status. 
just like we can't love others, as James points out, by violating the laws of not committing adultery or committing murder against our neighbor. That very clearly is not loving. James is saying there's no difference in God's eyes. Because of these heavy statements, my challenge to us is to respond to God today. How are we treating others that we don't like or disagree with? How are we being selfish with our own resources that leads to evil action and thought? Do we lack generosity? Do we lack kindness? How are we loving others by controlling our anger or unkind speech? Do we lack charity towards others? Do we have a prejudiced attitude against others, especially fellow Christians? Do we practice discrimination? Be blessed and confess these things as they're applicable. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.